From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Money often leads to greed and sometimes even to murder. So we should not be surprised to learn about a miner killing other miners for their gold, the rawest form of currency. This story sounds believable from our jaded 21st century perspective. In 1939, though, to the miners in Cache Creek country, the residents of Talkeetna, and people in Anchorage, the murders at Cache Creek represented the worst type of betrayal of the code of trust and respect followed by the independent men and women who labored in the mud to eke out a living and extract a valuable mineral from the earth. When the FBI did not quickly apprehend the killer, miners began to lock their cabins and fear their neighbors. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. When most people think of gold in Alaska, they picture a long line of miners snaking up the Chilkoot Trail into the Klondike region of the Yukon. These miners were not going to Alaska, though. Many prospectors heading to the Klondike boarded ships in Seattle and disembarked in Alaska, but they climbed into the Yukon Territory to mine the gold. A Russian mining engineer first discovered gold in Alaska in 1832, and gold was first mined in Alaska in 1870. After the end of the Klontike Gold Rush in 1899, some of the Yukon gold miners began prospecting in Alaska, and they and other prospectors discovered gold in many areas of the state. The Juneau Gold Rush began in 1876, before the discovery of gold in the Klondike. In 1898, three lucky men found gold nuggets on the beaches of Nome, triggering a rush to the area. The Cape Nome district produced over 5 million ounces of gold. Prospectors discovered gold in the Cache Creek Mining District in 1898, and miners soon arrived to stake claims near the numerous gold-bearing streams in the area. Talkeetna, the nearest town to Cash Creek Country, served as the outpost and supply station for the miners in the region. Cash Creek Country encompasses a small mountain group along the western boundary of the Susitna River Valley at the base of the Alaska Range. Cash Creek, the richest gold-bearing stream in the area, lent its name to the region. The mining camps in Cache Creek Country were located many miles from Talkeetna, and miners usually faced a two- to three-day hike from Talkeetna to the remote cabins. In 1927, the construction of the Petersville Road provided a trail partway into the mining territory, 
and the Peters Creek Roadhouse, called the Forks Roadhouse by locals, constructed between 1930 and 1933, allowed miners a respite approximately halfway between the long journey from their mining camps to Talkeetna. The mining camps in Cache Creek Country sat several miles from each other, but this community of scattered gold miners knew each other well, and most were generous with their meager supplies, offering food, water, and a place to stay to travelers in need. Frank Jenkins arrived in Cache Creek Country in 1911. He stood five foot seven inches tall and weighed 135 pounds. He was slim and wiry, with blue eyes and brown hair. Frank normally mined and prospected in the summer and trapped in the winter. He married Helen around 1923. Helen was a petite woman. She measured five foot three inches in height and weighed 100 pounds. She had short, light brown hair and wore it parted in the middle. Crewmen who worked at Frank and Helen's mine described Helen as opinionated, excitable, and odd. Others claimed she was crazy. As a couple, Frank and Helen came across as distrustful, cynical, and not at all social. Frank and Helen might have had objectionable personalities, but they worked hard and produced more gold than most mining operations in the area. Frank once reportedly lost $30,000 he'd deposited in a bank when the bank failed during the Great Depression. He never again trusted banks, and whispered rumors suggested Frank and Helen buried at least some of their gold near their mining cabin. Dick Francis began prospecting in Cache Creek Country in 1914. Francis stood five foot nine inches tall, weighed 150 pounds, and was a good-looking man with dark hair, an angular nose, and blue eyes. He had a friendly, easygoing personality and many friends in the region. Francis kept a pot of beans heating on the stove in his cabin and other miners knew they were welcome to stop in and help themselves to a bowl of beans, even if Francis was not there at the time. Most of the Placer gold mines in Cache Creek Country were one-person operations, consisting of little more than a homemade sluice box placed in a creek. The miners shoveled gravel into the box, and the stream washed away the rocky debris, while the heavier gold sank and lodged in the handmade riffles in the bottom of the box. Miners lived in tents or crude cabins during the summer while they worked their claims. Water is critical to placer mining because it washes the gold-bearing gravels through the sluice box. Prospectors often found gold veins far away from a water source, though, so they had to dam up and divert nearby streams through hand-dug ditches, sometimes for a mile or more. To use a creek, miners filed for water rights, just as they did for mineral rights. By 1920, both Dick Francis and Frank Jenkins were well-established in the Cache Creek mining country. 
1932, Dick Francis recorded two claims on Ruby Creek, called Sure Thing No. 1 and Sure Thing No. 2. These two claims sat just above one of Frank Jenkins' critical ditch systems and some of his active mining tracks. In April 1933, Francis staked another claim, even closer to Jenkins' operation. Jenkins at once began to worry about Francis dumping tailings on his claims, or worse yet, he feared Francis's tailings would end up in the ditch system Jenkins had constructed to provide the crucial water he needed for his gold mining operation. Frank Jenkins suspected any miner who staked a claim too close to his operation. Jenkins complained to Francis, but Francis ignored him. In 1934, Frank Jenkins filed a legal complaint against Dick Francis, claiming Francis was dumping his mine tailings in his water ditch, hampering his ability to mine his claims. He stated Francis had already caused $1,000 worth of damage, and he said Francis would do irreparable harm unless the court restrained him with an injunction. Francis denied the charges, and the court set a date for a hearing. Meanwhile, the judge granted Jenkins a temporary injunction, and the judge ordered Francis to cease from depositing debris or gravel on Jenkins's claims. Jenkins and Francis went to court in January 1935, and the judge determined Francis's operation had produced tailings causing minimal damage to Jenkins's water ditch. The judge stated if Francis continued to produce tailings, they could seriously damage Jenkins's operation, and he ordered Francis to build suitable barriers on his claim and not to interfere or obstruct Jenkins's water rights. Specifically, the judge ordered Francis to construct a sandbox to catch his tailings and to clean the box regularly. The judge told Jenkins to allow Francis to build and maintain the sandbox in Jenkins's dam. The judge's decision only caused the feud between Jenkins and Francis to escalate. When Francis proceeded to build the sandbox on Jenkins's dam, Frank and Helen hiked up to the dam and refused to permit Francis from constructing the box. Jenkins claimed Francis attempted to install a sluice box with a gate in his dam, and Jenkins insisted this would seriously impair the flow of water in his ditch and would cause the dam to leak badly. Both Jenkins and Francis began carrying guns as their dispute escalated. A young man who worked for Frank and Helen Jenkins said Jenkins always carried his gun when they worked near the boundary of Francis's claim. The young worker said at any time he expected a shootout with Francis, and he said Helen Jenkins once told him she wanted to set Dick Francis's cabin on fire while Dick was asleep. During the winter of 1935-1936, Jenkins and Francis continued their legal battles. Jenkins filed claims against Francis, and in retaliation, Francis filed complaints against Jenkins. 
Meanwhile, the animosity between Dick Francis and Frank and Helen Jenkins grew. The ongoing legal battles wore on Dick Francis, and friends noted he seemed paranoid and consumed by his relationship with Frank and Helen Jenkins. One winter night, Francis thought he heard someone outside his cabin and believed Frank Jenkins was stalking him. He grabbed his gun, ran outdoors, and blindly began shooting into the dark to scare off Jenkins. Dick's friends began to worry about him. By 1938, Dick Francis was in debt and depressed. He seemed to age quickly and became increasingly bitter. Friends said Francis talked continually about Frank and Helen Jenkins. Sometimes Francis threatened he was going to do something to the Jenkinses, but his friends did not take his threat seriously. Some friends thought Dick was slipping mentally, while others maintained he seemed worn down but rational. He told one friend he worried Helen Jenkins might come to his cabin and poison his food. By the winter of 1938-1939, Dick Francis seemed to be getting even more paranoid, and Helen Jenkins thought she and her husband should request a hearing to test his sanity. In the early months of 1939, a stranger stepped off the train in Talkeetna. A local woman described him as having cold blue eyes, a pasty complexion, and a large scar around his neck, just under his chin. He stood six foot one inches and weighed 185 pounds. He said his name was Zan Clark, but he went by John. He said he planned to stake gold claims in the area. John Clark hiked to Cache Creek Country to prospect and soon became acquainted with the other miners in the area. Before long, he heard about the feud between Frank and Helen Jenkins and Dick Francis. A rumor about Clark soon surfaced among the miners. The previous year, he had worked for the Evan Jones Coal Company in Alaska and was reportedly injured on the job. He filed suit against the company, and the judge awarded him $2,000 in damages. As soon as he received his money, Clark left the hospital, and an acquaintance saw him out dancing the following evening. When Cash Creek miners heard this story, they became wary of Clark. Clark knew Frank and Helen Jenkins owned one of the most successful mines in the area and he began asking other miners about Frank Jenkins' operation, wondering how much gold Jenkins had mined and if he kept his gold in his cabin. After Clark argued with Ken, Maxine, and Joy Brittell, young miners who often worked for Frank Jenkins but were also trying to start their own mining operation, they returned to their camp one evening to find their tent on fire. They had no doubt Clark had set the fire, and they warned Frank and Helen about him. Several of the miners in the Cache Creek area began to distrust and even fear Clark. One miner told Dick Francis to be careful of his dealings with Clark, and Frank Jenkins became irritated with Clark's frequent visits at mealtime. Clark stoked the feud between Jenkins and Francis, and he often told other miners what one said about the other. 
Frank and Helen Jenkins had a very profitable season during the summer of 1939, and Helen showed some of her visitors a few of the large nuggets they had recently mined. Clark undoubtedly heard the stories about these large chunks of gold at the Jenkins' cabin. After they finished prospecting and working their operation for the summer, Joy, Maxine, and Ken Brittell went to work for Frank and Helen Jenkins. Ken, a schoolteacher, left with his wife Maxine at the end of the summer, but Joy stayed to help Frank and Helen close down their mine for the winter. On September 10, 1939, Frank Jenkins and Joy Brittell hiked to John Clark's cabin, where Joy and Ken had stored their large radio and battery. Ken had recently sent a message to Joy to pick up the radio and battery and ship it to him. Helen Jenkins wrote in her diary, Frank over on Wolf with Joy to get his radio. It is beautiful today. On the evening of September 11th, pilot Chris Christensen landed in Talkeetna and hurried to Commissioner Ben Mayfield's office to report the death of Dick Francis. He told Mayfield he was delivering supplies to the nearby Petersville mine when Rocky Cummins and John Clark arrived and told him Dick Francis had committed suicide. John Clark said he discovered Francis's body around 8 a.m. on the morning of the 11th. Clark hiked to the Jenkins's camp to report the death, but no one was there. Clark then walked to Rocky Cummins' cabin and told him the news, and Rocky traveled with him to the Petersville mine to report it. Clark said he believed Francis committed suicide because he still held the revolver in his hand. Due to bad weather, Mayfield did not reach Francis's camp until September 13th. John Clark met Mayfield at the cabin. Dick Francis lay on his back on the floor with a 38 revolver held loosely in his right hand, and the hand rested on his stomach. His left hand sprawled across his chest, and blood pooled on the right side of his body. Mayfield noticed blood spatters on cartons of supplies to the right of the body. At first glance, Mayfield noted only one wound in Francis's head. The lack of blood stains elsewhere in the cabin led Mayfield to conclude Francis fell where he was shot. Mayfield noted no bullet holes in the cabin. Clark told Mayfield he had been unable to locate Frank and Helen Jenkins at their cabin and Mayfield wondered if Francis murdered the Jenkinses and then committed suicide. Clark also said someone was in his cabin on September 10th because the radio the Brittells had stored in his cabin was now missing. He claimed he was not at his cabin when the visitors took the radio, but he surmised Frank Jenkins and Joy Brittell picked up the radio in his absence. He said he'd gone to visit Dick Francis on the morning of the 10th, and when he returned, the radio was not there. Mayfield organized a party to search for Frank and Helen Jenkins. Since Joy Brittell was currently working for Jenkins, Mayfield feared Brittell might also be missing. Because Clark stated he thought Frank Jenkins 
and probably Joy Brittell, had hiked to his cabin to pick up the radio, Mayfield decided to search the estimated four-mile area between the camps of Clark and Jenkins. U.S. Attorney Joseph Kehoe arrived at the Petersville mine to assist with the search and investigation. Later that day, on September 14th, John Clark, working with the search party, discovered the bodies of Frank Jenkins and Joey Brittell. Kehoe accompanied Mayfield to Dick Francis's cabin and observed Francis and the scene. He noted that the cartridge cylinder of the gun Francis held in his hand contained four cartridges. Two were missing. He carefully examined Francis's head and determined Francis had two bullet holes in the right side of his head. Next, Kehoe and Mayfield hiked to the area where the searchers had found the bodies of Frank Jenkins and his assistant, Joy Brittell. The men lay face down in the dirt, six feet apart, with their packs still strapped to their backs. Frank's pack held a radio, and Joy's pack contained a battery. Someone had beaten the left side of Frank Jenkins' head and cut his throat from ear to ear. Jenkins grasped a walking stick, and his left index finger was smashed and hanging loosely from the finger bone. The left side of Joy Brittell's head was bruised and cut, and his throat had been slashed in two places. As the men studied the bodies, a harsh wind and heavy snow bombarded them, obscuring the crime scene. Helen Jenkins was still missing, so the miners continued to search for her. They poked through the underbrush near the Jenkins's mine, not expecting to find her alive. Mayfield and Kehoe searched Frank and Helen's cabin, and Kehoe discovered two glass bottles filled with gold dust. They also found Helen's diary with her last cheerful entry on September 10th. Let me take a minute to recognize the clever, creative folks behind the puzzle game app, Best Fiends. Thank you for sponsoring Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I appreciate your support. I've spent some time in the last few months working on television true crime shows set in Alaska. I'm not crazy about talking to a camera, and I do get nervous, but I enjoy talking to the director and producer about the murder they are profiling. They know as much and sometimes more about the crime than I do, and it's interesting to compare notes. The other day, when I picked up my Best Fiends game, I realized it would also be fun to play Best Fiends with others. You could discuss strategies for certain puzzles, compare the cute, funny characters you've collected, and brag about how far you've progressed. I talk about the game with my husband, who also plays it, but due to our limited internet, I cannot play Best Fiends on Facebook with others. If you like games and puzzles, but you don't want to play alone, check out Best Fiends on Facebook and make it a social occasion. If you prefer to play Best Fiends alone, I don't blame you. I love to shut myself in my room and relax and energize myself by spending a few minutes with my Best Fiends. 
Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Dick Francis's good friend, Ed Carlson, decided to clean up the blood in Dick's cabin. While he worked, he thought about what John Clark had told him. According to Clark, the last time he saw Dick alive was around noon on September 10th, when he drank a cup of coffee with him and then accompanied him to his ruby mining pit to help him pile up sluice boxes. Carlson suddenly realized Clark's words made no sense. Francis had recently been working at his Poorman Creek mine, not at his ruby pit. Why would Francis need Clark's help at his ruby mine? After the autopsy on Dick Francis, the coroner stated Francis did not commit suicide, but was instead murdered. The coroner determined he'd been shot twice in the head, and either shot instantly would have been fatal. Francis could not have shot himself twice. Someone murdered Francis, Jenkins, and Brittell. Meanwhile, searchers still had not found Helen Jenkins. Kehoe departed Cache Creek, leaving Ben Mayfield in charge. Commissioner Mayfield's job entailed supervising government records, performing marriages, acting as a coroner, and administering oaths. While he dealt with minor offenses in and around Talkeetna, he had no criminal investigative training. On September 18th, a searcher found the body of Helen Jenkins on a hill north of her camp. She lay near a creek her body concealed by snow-covered vegetation. The killer had beaten Helen so brutally her brain was exposed, and she had a long, deep cut over her left eye. Mayfield believed the killer used an axe to murder her. Her face was so brutally battered, searchers only recognized her because she wore her usual dark denim coat, along with her dark pants and an olive green wool sweater. Mayfield noted all the pockets in her pants were inside out. The murders greatly affected the miners in Cash Creek country, who had always depended upon and helped each other. They now became distrustful and scared and wondered who among them was the murderer. The miners carried guns wherever they went. R.C. Vogel, the only FBI agent for the entire territory of Alaska, wired Mayfield, inquired about the investigation, and said he would not be able to travel to the area of the murders at the present time. Mayfield appointed a caretaker for the Jenkins' cabin, and people began to speculate about where Frank and Helen had hidden their gold. Kehoe had discovered two bottles of gold dust, but Helen Jenkins showed several people the large gold nuggets they'd unearthed. Since Frank Jenkins didn't believe in banks, 
Was the gold buried near their cabin? Or did the murderer find and steal the gold? On September 24th, Frank Huffman, the man Mayfield hired to caretake the Jenkins' cabin, was picking through the wood pile for kindling when he noticed four leather bags under the wood near the floor. When he opened the bags, he found they contained raw gold. He weighed out 170 ounces of gold, worth thousands of dollars. Huffman contacted Ben Mayfield in Talkeetna to inform him of the discovery. FBI agent R.C. Vogel finally arrived in Talkeetna several days later. His office was in Juneau, 900 miles from Talkeetna, so he endured a long journey to reach Cash Creek country. Meanwhile, the Anchorage Daily Times newspaper ran an editorial complaining about the lack of federal law enforcement agents assigned to investigate the murders of four minors. The article asked if the Federal Bureau of Investigation did not feel the brutal killings of four people in Alaska were worth their time to investigate. Mayfield briefed Agent Vogel on the murders and said John Clark and Rocky Cummins were the two individuals closest to the scene of the killings. Mayfield said he initially assumed Dick Francis murdered Frank and Maxine Jenkins and Joy Brittell and then shot himself. If the murder-suicide theory proved incorrect, though, then perhaps robbery was the motive for killing Frank and Helen Jenkins. The Jenkinses ran a successful operation, and rumors circulated about the gold they hoarded on their property. The killer might have decided to exploit the Francis-Jenkins feud by making it appear Francis shot Frank and Helen Jenkins in a fit of rage and then killed himself. Meanwhile, the real murderer's goal was to find the gold at the Jenkins' cabin. Mayfield explained to Vogel how the pockets of Helen Jenkins' trousers were turned inside out, indicating perhaps someone searched her pockets for the cabin keys. Mayfield said he did not believe Francis would go to the trouble of hiding the bodies if he planned to commit suicide. Mayfield told Vogel he'd learned some interesting information about John Clark. Clark had reportedly been injured while working for the Evan Jones Coal Company and had received a $2,000 settlement. But it was questionable whether he was hurt or just faking the injury. Mayfield also learned Clark and two other men had gone prospecting elsewhere in Alaska during the summer of 1938, and one of the men never returned to Anchorage and hadn't been seen since. Investigators believed Clark and his buddy were somehow involved in the disappearance of the third man, but they couldn't prove it. Mayfield told Vogel that many of the Cache Creek country miners suspected Clark murdered Dick Francis, Frank and Helen Jenkins, and Joy Brittell. Mayfield also explained how Clark's timeline was wrong. Clark said he discovered the body of Dick Francis around 8.30 on the morning on the 11th. But Rocky Cummins claimed Clark arrived at his cabin between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. to tell him about finding Dick's body. 
the distance between the Francis's and Cummins' cabins took two to three hours to cover on foot. As time passed and the rumors grew more speculative, fear and anger escalated among the miners and the residents of Talkeetna. Provocative headlines and stories in the Anchorage Daily Times fueled the high emotions, and people began to wonder if law enforcement would ever catch the murderer. When interviewed, Clark implied the activities of minor Rocky Cummins seemed suspicious, and he mentioned that Cummins knew Frank Jenkins and Joy Brattell planned to hike to his cabin to retrieve the radio. He also told Vogel he feared Rocky Cummins was trying to frame him for the murders. Cummins had been a miner in Cache Creek country for many years, and the other miners knew and liked him. No one suspected Cummins could be the murderer. They felt John Clark was the only likely suspect. When Vogel questioned Rocky Cummins, he claimed he had no idea Frank Jenkins and Joy Brattell planned to hike to Clark's camp to pick up a radio on the day they were murdered. Clark claimed he wasn't at his camp when Jenkins and Brattell arrived to get the radio. But when he returned to his cabin that evening, he noticed the radio and battery were gone. Since Clark always locked his cabin while he was away, and Frank Jenkins never broke a lock to enter a cabin, area miners believed Clark was lying when he said he wasn't there when Jenkins and Brittell arrived to retrieve the battery. Vogel began checking into Clark's background and learned Clark had been involved with several known criminals. The owner of the Evan Jones Coal Company told Vogel he was preparing to file charges against Clark because he now believed Clark had faked the back injury for which the mine had compensated him $2,000. In addition to suffering two fatal gunshots to his head, Francis was right-handed, and the coroner felt certain the bullets entered his head from the left side, further proving Francis did not commit suicide. Francis also had no powder burns around the gunshot wounds, and if he put the gun to his head and pulled the trigger, powder burns should have been present. Joy Brittell's brother, Ken, who also had worked for Jenkins during the summer of 1939, talked to the FBI and said he believed John Clark murdered his brother and the others. He recounted the story about someone setting their tent on fire after they'd argued with Clark. And he said Clark asked him several times if he knew how much gold Frank Jenkins was taking out of the ground. Ken also disputed Clark's claim that he was not at home when Frank and Joy arrived to get the radio. According to Ken, Clark always locked his cabin when he wasn't there, and Ken knew neither Frank nor Joy would break the lock to enter the cabin. Ken believed Clark must have been at his cabin when Frank and Joy arrived to retrieve the radio. After being harshly criticized by the residents of Anchorage, the FBI seemed determined to solve the Cash Creek murders, and the investigation increased in size and scope. 
FBI agents followed numerous leads, but the information they gathered never seemed to bring them any closer to arresting anyone for the murders of Dick Francis, Frank and Helen Jenkins, and Joy Brittell. Agent Vogel admitted in writing that he suspected John Clark of the murders, but he could not prove his suspicions. On December 7, 1941, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, and the FBI turned its attention toward the war. The FBI was responsible for national security within the U.S., and agents had little time to worry about a group of murders in the territory of Alaska. On July 7, 1943, an FBI agent in Juneau filed the final report on the Cache Creek Country murder investigation. Despite all evidence to the contrary, he concluded Dick Francis killed the other three victims and then committed suicide. To support his claim, he referenced the long-standing feud between Francis and Frank and Helen Jenkins. The agent guessed Francis must have seen Frank Jenkins and Joy Brittell hiking down the trail from John Clark's cabin after they picked up the radio and battery, and he followed and murdered them. The agent then surmised Mrs. Jenkins became alarmed when Frank and Joy did not return, so she loaded her Remington rifle and headed out to look for them. Frances probably came upon her, pulled the gun from her grasp, and clubbed her to death. Francis then returned to his cabin and committed suicide. According to the report, Francis fired two shots into his head with a 38 caliber revolver. The first bullet entered the head above the right ear and exited above the left eyebrow, and the second bullet pierced the brain. The agent stated the second bullet was fatal, but the first was not, allowing Francis to shoot himself a second time. The FBI never released this report to the public. The case of the Cash Creek murders still haunts Talkeetna. No one with a long history in the area believes the FBI's final report. They do not think Dick Francis brutally murdered three people and then shot himself in the head twice. Even if Francis hated Frank and Helen Jenkins enough to murder them, and most of the miners the FBI questioned stated their animosity did not rise to the level of murder, he would not have beaten Joey Brittell to death. Perhaps more importantly, though, it seems unlikely Dick Francis could have shot himself twice in the head. The coroner stated both shots were fatal wounds. A much more compelling murder candidate was the man who first reported Dick Francis dead and discovered the bodies of Frank Jenkins and Joy Brittell. John Clark offered inconsistent testimony about his actions on the day he found Francis's body and he claimed an impossible timeline for his movements. The miners in Cache Creek country did not trust Clark, and most feared him. Everyone in the area knew John Clark murdered Dick Francis, Frank Jenkins, Helen Jenkins, and Joy Brittell. 
Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Thank you.